0: Have you ever judged a book by its cover? I know we're always told never to judge a book by its cover, but somehow I always find myself judging almost every single book by its cover. Oftentimes if I'm at a bookstore I'll actually look at the new releases and if something looks good I'll actually pick it up to read the synopsis to see if it's something that I actually want to read. Well years ago I was at a bookstore and I came across this book. And it was a memoir about a man and a woman who went to live in this small little Italian town by the name of Sutri. I had never heard of it. I don't know what made me buy this book. But I started reading it, and I enjoyed it. So when Kara and I got married, when we were planning our honeymoon, we decided that we wanted to go to Italy. And I told Kara, it would be so awesome if we could go and visit this little town that I read about like 15 years ago. And that was all I said. And so when Kara finally gave us our final itinerary and because she planned everything, Kara is a great planner. I mean, everything was done so well. And when she gave me the itinerary, like we were actually gonna go to this little village that I had always dreamed of going to. It's one of those bucket list type of places. And I was just so excited to go. And, and it was in the middle of our trip and, and Sutri is about 50 miles north of Rome. And And when we got there, we had to take a train and it was a Sunday. And the Airbnb person that we were renting from, he comes and his English um, was very broken. And my Italian, well, I don't speak Italian. I I kept trying to learn words while I was there, but it was just so difficult. So when our Airbnb host picked us up, he said, like, do you guys speak Italian? And I said, no. And he was like, where you're going, no one speaks English. And I said, well, that's fine. Like, Someone has to speak Spanish there. And he's like, no, he goes, everyone there, because it's such an old village, like everyone there only speaks Italian. And I thought to myself, well, it can't be that bad. I'll use Google Translate, because that's what we think solves everything. By the way, this place was a tourist destination. I mean, people would come there because there were ancient ruins um, dating back to the time of the Roman Colosseum. So this was a place that was heavily trafficked by tourists. So anyway, we get there. Our Airbnb, it was amazing. It was like they had just remodeled everything. I told Kara, like, I could live here for the rest of my life and just read and write and do whatever else people do in Italy. So we get there and I said, well, before the sun sets, because the, the sun was beginning to set, I said, let's go into the, the square. So it was like this little, the central part of the town. And they have some cafes. They have like a bakery. And they also had a visitor center. So I said, well, let's, let's go to the visitor center. Maybe we can find something there. So we walk into the visitor center and the guy that was working there, he welcomed us and he knew we weren't Italian. And so he actually spoke to us in English and we thought to ourselves, oh, like all of our fears about no one speaking English, like they were all wiped away. We can just ask this guy what we need to do and then he can help us. And then he kindly said, do you guys speak Italian. I said, no, we don't speak Italian. He said, no one here speaks English. He says, I'm the only person in this town that speaks English, and that's only because I work for the village, and tourists are coming here all the time. He says, so just be careful when you're out there. Not, not that there was anything to worry about, but like, just be aware that no one speaks English. Now, one of the things that Kara and I wanted to do while we were there was just get to know the lay of the land, and so we would go to the grocery store, which they function so much differently there, by the way, um, but we went to the grocery store, we bought food, we were going to be there for several days. We went to a pizza shop and they were happy to see us, but they only spoke in Italian. And so we just started pointing at things and it was enough communication for them to give us what we needed. And so it was just this jarring moment of feeling so, I guess you could say alone, kind of jarred to reality, disoriented. So on the second day that we're there and... We, we go to all of the, the ruins and, and there was like a miniature coliseum and all sorts of tombs. It was beautiful. And across the street from there, there was a sandwich shop. And so I told Carrot, look, buses are coming here. There's tourists here. There's no way that that person at that sandwich shop isn't going to speak English. And, and like, even if he doesn't speak English, I'll throw my Spanish in because I did that while we were there. And a lot of people understood Spanish. So we get there and I thought how hard is it to just point at a picture of a sandwich? Like a sandwich is a sandwich. Like You can't get a sandwich wrong. So we go there and everything <laughs> was in Italian. I'm laughing, but I wasn't laughing then. And so I looked on my phone to try to see, well, how do you say Turkey in Italian? You know, Cause we'd get like a Turkey sandwich or something. And the guy was like, okay, what do you guys want? Like, hurry up. Like he was kind of hurrying us up. So like, I, I didn't panic, but I just was like, I'll take, we'll take two of these. Like we picked two different sandwiches you know, playing the odds, hoping that if one wasn't good, the other one would be. And I thought to myself, it was probably going to be like a turkey sandwich. So we get our sandwiches, and they were big, they looked delicious. But instead of being turkey, because I thought I was ordering turkey, it was like pork three ways. And like, we don't eat pork. I, I didn't grow up eating it, and we just we just don't eat it for a lot of different reasons. And so we just sat there, and we looked at each other, and it was this tiny place. And it's like, like. Like, what do we do? And so you remember when you're a kid and your mom tells you you have to finish all your vegetables? Many of us would find creative ways to hide the food. And so you would put it in your napkin, you'd put it in your pocket, whatever you would do. So I got napkins and we just like slowly and quietly took the pork off of there. And then we were just left with like bread and like a piece of cheese and tomato. And in that moment, I just felt so disoriented Because like Italy looks in many ways like America, like everything is the same, but everything actually was not the same and it was different. And like in that moment, not being able to speak the language, not being able to communicate, I felt so disoriented. I felt literally like a stranger in a strange land because we just weren't a part of the people. Now I don't know if you've ever felt that way in your life. But it's difficult. Sometimes you don't even know what to do next. And it reminds me of a story in the Bible. In Exodus chapter 2, we, we see this picture of Moses. Now Moses, for those of you who don't know, he was the grandson of the king, of the Pharaoh. He was actually an adopted grandson, but it didn't seem to matter. The Bible doesn't tell us that there was any issue with that. See, Moses was actually a Hebrew. He was an Israelite, but he was raised in the courts of the Pharaoh, which means that like Moses was living the life Of the rich and famous. Anything he wanted was at his disposal. Like there was nothing that he lacked. Everything he wanted was given to him, was handed to him, but he wasn't actually an Egyptian. In many ways, we could say he was a stranger in a strange land. And the Bible tells us that one day Moses goes out and it says that he wanted to see the burden of the Israelites. He wanted to see, like, what they were going through. And it tells us that one day he comes up and he sees one of the Egyptian taskmasters, one of, like, the people that were in charge of the slaves. And he sees them mistreating or beating one of these Hebrew brothers of Moses. And the Bible says that Moses goes and stops him, but he actually kills the Egyptian. And as soon as the Pharaoh found out, the Bible says that Pharaoh wanted to get vengeance on him and kill him. And so Moses literally does what any one of us would have done in that situation, and he literally runs for his life. Now, the Bible tells us that Moses gets there, he, he marries, and he has a son, and he names his son Gershom, which literally means, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Like Moses acknowledges that he is far from home. And it wasn't that he was far from Egypt because he wanted to be back in the royal family. That's not at all what he meant. But what Moses was actually saying is that his entire life, because he was raised in an Egyptian court, he wasn't a part of his brothers and sisters who were the Hebrew Israelites of the Old Testament. And so Moses names his firstborn son. Like, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And Moses was looking for home not a physical home, but he wanted to find a place where he could have safety and security among his people. So even though he had been a stranger in a strange land, what that really means is that he was looking for a rhythm of life that would allow him to feel like things were the way they were supposed to be. You know, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with someone where you say things like, you think back to a memory that you have, and then you say something like, oh, and those were the good old days. This past week, Facebook sends me these notes. Actually, it's almost on a daily basis, and maybe you'll have experienced this. Facebook will send me notifications, and it'll say, three years ago, you were here, four years ago, five years ago, and it'll show you a picture of a post that I posted years ago. And I find myself kind of going back to that moment and And I over-romanticize them because that's what we do when we look back over our lives. We romanticize things. And sometimes I'll think to myself, man, those were the good old days. You know, if you've ever had that thought or that sentiment, that desire or that feeling for those good old days, what we're really saying isn't that we necessarily want to live that moment over, but a recollection of those moments is that we want to go back to perhaps a simpler, easier time in our lives. So when Moses says, I'm a stranger in a strange land, all he's saying is, I want to go back and be with my people, be at home. But that's not the first story that we find this this motif of feeling like they're a stranger in a strange land. So I want to look at the story in Genesis chapter 3. Now it's, I'm not going to look at the whole thing, but it's the story of Adam and Eve and most of us have heard of, of Adam and Eve, the fall from the Garden of Eden, or fall from grace as we say it. So I'm not going to go over the whole story. I'm going to look at just one small part of this story. So I want to break it down to you. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 tells us this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And listen to what it says. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve, literally, like Moses, had everything they could possibly want. Like, Adam and Eve were literally at the top of the food chain. Like, literally at the top of the food chain. The Bible tells us that they got to determine how things were and named animals and all that stuff. So, like, they literally were at the very top. Not only that, but they were able to be in the presence of God. Like, they could have face-to-face conversations with God, but because of one decision... They literally abdicate their position in this paradise of Eden. Like this one decision that, that seemed to make sense and they give into it actually ends up leading to their destruction. But it's not just their story. Like we have all made decisions in our lives that we think make sense, that we think were normal decisions, like that end up actually leading to our destruction. You know, sometimes the very thing that we pray for, that miracle that we're asking God for, because we want it, sometimes ends up becoming the very curse that leads to our demise. And that's what was happening to Adam and Eve. They literally had everything, and with one simple decision that they made, actually ended up having a disastrous effect on their lives but it's it's not just their story it's our story as well now verse 24 says this god drove out the man and at the east of the garden of eden god placed a cherubim with a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life god takes adam and eve and he literally evicts them out of the garden of eden and what the bible tells us and the bible makes no mistake is that God puts them to the east of the Garden of Eden. And the reason that the cherubim or this angel was guarding the way to the Tree of Life is that the Tree of Life was symbolic for the life-giving presence of God. Adam and Eve had the life-giving presence of God, and they let go of that. They, they, They made a terrible decision, and so now they find themselves to the east of the Garden of Eden. Because sometimes the decisions that we make in the blink of an eye can have such disastrous results in our lives. And so now Adam and Eve, can you, can you just, just think about this for a second? They had everything, the protection, the food, the animals, the, you name it, they had it. And then from one moment to the next, they find themselves outside the garden and all they can do is look in. Not only were they no longer VIP access members, but they couldn't even get general admission passes to the garden. Their decision was final. And I can only imagine how disorienting it would have been for them because now they were a stranger in a strange land. You see how that begins to play itself out throughout all of Scripture. Can you imagine that moment of paralysis That moment of fear, that moment of panicking, when they realize, like, we no longer have access to the very thing that was giving us life. But you've all experienced that. When you've come to an end of anything in your life, it sometimes is jarring and feels disorienting. If you've ever come to the end of a relationship, whether it's a a dating relationship or a marriage, You'll feel like when you come to that moment, you don't really know what to do or what to expect. You don't know what life is going to look like. You don't even know how you're going to share that story. And so you're in this place of strangeness. You know, if you've ever been on the other side of losing a job, a job that you thought was going to take you to retirement and give you everything that you need, and now all of a sudden you find yourself collecting unemployment and you think to yourself, like, how am I ever going to make sense of this? Like, it could even be something as simple, and I'm not making this trivial, but if you've ever failed an exam in school and you needed that one class to pass, or you needed that one class to to help your GPA get better, but then it like flounders and it messes up your GPA, you begin to wonder, like, like, what am I gonna do? Because panic begins to set in when we find ourselves in situations that we weren't expecting. Or even like today, when we look around and we find ourselves literally being confined to our own homes, our homes are safety, our homes represent Our stability in our lives, for most of us, our home is like our little kingdom that we love to retreat to when work gets too much, when other relationships get to be too much, we retreat back to home. But now the very place that used to be our safety, now all of a sudden, we feel like we're in a strange place. If you've ever not had enough money to pay for a bill, and the due date comes and goes, it's disorienting to begin to think, well... Like, how am I going to make ends meet? Really, you can fill in the blank to these moments of fear and panic in your life. So when Adam and Eve are put out to the east of the Garden of Eden, east of the Garden of Eden represents the estrangement, the distance, the separation from humanity to God. Now, the very next story in the scriptures, which is so crazy because What ends up happening is that from the moment that Adam and Eve are placed to the east of the Garden of Eden, like it literally sets the tone for not only like almost all of the Old Testament, but also in a spiritual sense, all of the New Testament. So listen to the very next story in scripture. So Adam and Eve, they're outside the Garden of Eden. The Bible tells us they have children and they have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel because he's favored by the Lord. And the Bible tells us that when Cain is having this conversation with God, God's like, you're done. Like, and, and, and Cain says, no, like, you, can't just, you can't just make me go away from my home. I'm just going to be a wanderer. The next person that sees me, they're going to kill me because they're going to know what I did. And so God gives him a reprieve and he's like, okay, fine. Like, like I'll let you go to a place where you can find some safety where no one's going to kill you. And the place, and, and I'll read this, it says, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Listen to this. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and he settled in the, in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You see, the, the, the symbolic and very real representation of being east of Eden is those moments in our lives when we find ourselves in a place where we don't recognize the world that we live in. East of Eden is the symbolic representation of your life when you look at your life and you, just, and you think to yourself, like, like, how did I ever get here? How did life turn out this way? How do I get back to some semblance of normal? How do I get back to some semblance of stability and safety? East of Eden is not just the story of our ancestors in Genesis, but it's our story today. And especially with what's going on in the world around us, it feels like things aren't the way they should. And so the Bible has a word to describe this this metaphor of East of Eden. And the word is called exile. Throughout the entire Old Testament, almost the entire Old Testament, We see the people of God constantly going into exile, being taken over by other foreign superpowers, and they are distributed throughout all of the region so that they can't fight back. And so they find themselves in exile. They find themselves in a place in their life where they have no idea how they got to where they were. They they knew. Because actually what happens is that God enters into into a covenant relationship with the Israelites. And early on in the first five books of the Bible, what we see is that God comes to the Israelites and He says, listen, I want to bless you tremendously. I want to give you everything. He gives them what they call the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a biblical way of saying that God was going to provide everything they needed. And so God tells the Israelites, listen, I want to give you everything. I want you to have the very best of all the land. I want you to have the very best of all the inheritance. Like, like you are my people and you, I want you to have a special purpose in this world. God says, but here's the, here's the covenant relationship that we're entering into. If you obey me and follow my, my commands, then I'll bless you. But if you disobey, if you disregard my laws, if you just go about your own life, then you will bring a curse on yourself. And the Bible would even say that the curse follows not only their generation, but the generations that follow after them. And it wasn't that God was purposely wanting to curse them. It's just so often in our lives, The like Adam and Eve, those little innocuous decisions that we think aren't that big a deal, they end up having this curse in our lives that sometimes go on through generations. And so we find this, I, this theme Of exile, and in exile, the Israelites are cursed. But here's what's powerful about that idea that it is in those moments and times of exile that the people of God are actually transformed, and God is able to liberate them from their exile. See, that's what happens in our lives in these moments of uncertainty, in these moments of disorienting chaos in our lives. What I have found is that in those moments, my relationship with God is strengthened. And the darkest moments of my life are those moments when I am more open and present to the transforming power of God. I had a friend of mine, I I saw this on his Instagram page just today, and he says, God doesn't waste your pain. Like, Like, think about that. Like, the moment of suffering you think you're going through right now, it's not that God is forcing you there. But God's not going to let this moment pass by without, at the very least, continuing the good work that He began in you of transforming you into this new creation. You see, when we find ourselves in exile, it's when we lack security or safety, joy or happiness. The place of exile is where we no longer have stability in our lives, not unlike what many people are experiencing today this time of disequilibrium in our lives when all we want is a, some form of sanity. Exile is like treading water when you weren't even a good swimmer to begin with because it feels overwhelming. And so the question we must wrestle with and, and, the, and the question that we're actually trying to answer over the next five weeks as we begin this new series that we've called Cadences of Hope the question that we want to explore is how do we discover hope in this metaphorical strange land? Just as Moses longed for stability and family, just as Adam and Eve tried to navigate their way in this new strange land, just as Cain was trying to figure out how to live in this new strange land. Like, like now we have to learn to navigate how to, how to live and find hope in the world in which we live in today. And so I want to show you with what little time I have left. From the book of Genesis, like there is just so much in Genesis that I think we still just skip over. But from Genesis, we we get these very simple truths of how we can find hope in troubling times. So if you have your Bible, I'm, I'm going to invite you to open to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And I hope you're wondering, like, I hope you're asking, like, like what in the world are we going to learn about how to find hope in the very first two verses of the Bible when you didn't need hope to begin with? Because the fall of humanity doesn't happen until chapter 3. So I'm glad you're having those questions. So I just want to show you what we find here. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, And darkness covered the face of the deep. And a wind from God swept over the face of the water. Right? So you're wondering, well, what are we going to learn from here? So that phrase, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered over the face of the deep. You see, what the English translation misses is that the Hebrew words are tohu and bohu often pronounced tohu vavohu. So in verse 2, when it says that the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, those Hebrew words of tohu and bohu, they're not just saying that it was darkness and formless, but I want to read this to you. It says, it describes all of the forces of chaos that can and do break into life and turn things upside down. So the very first words in that second verse of the Bible says that there was this chaos that was existing and it was covering the face of the deep and it uses the, the words, water were present. And what's powerful about that is that when God speaks creation into existence, what he's actually doing is that his ruach, the breath of God, the voice of God, the spirit of God, which hovered over the face of the deep, over the face of the chaos the disorienting places, the worries in your life, the things that are messing with you, the things that are causing you anxiety, the things that are causing you worry, the things that are literally all in the world around us, the things that are turning things upside down, that that tohu vavohu that was happening all around, that the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos and then He speaks life into existence. God speaks order where chaos reigns. You see, in the Old Testament, the like bodies of water, not even Old Testament, but New Testament too, bodies of water were seen by the Israelites as like a threat. They were seen, they, they saw the bo- or understood the bodies of water as a place of darkness, a place of evil, a place of uncertainty. So when the Bible begins with this, they would have understood that in this time, ta- in this threatening place of uncertainty, the very Spirit of God was breathing order into the chaos. David in the Psalms would write about how God has power over the seas. The book of Revelation in chapter 21, verse 1, I believe it is, it actually describes a new heaven and the new earth. And one of the crazy things that I always thought was weird, it says that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no sea. And I always wondered, like, well, how is there going to be no sea if God is going to renew the earth? But you see, it was symbolic language in the book of Revelation. And what John was writing, what he, what he was actually saying, is that in the new heaven, in the new earth, the idea that there's no sea means that there will be no threat of danger. There will be no chaos. There will be no suffering, no pain, no disease, no fear. All of that will be wiped away. Why? Because the Spirit of God breathes order and life where there is chaos and fear. So we've called this sermon series Cadences of Hope. And when you think of a cadence, when we think of cadence, we think of it in the context of music or a song. And in some ways, a cadence is it's kind of what gives the song its rhythm, gives the song its flow. It's, it's like the thing where you can kind of, you know, you nod your head a little bit because you, it, you feel that cadence of the notes and the music. In running, you every runner has a cadence to their stride. And if you're in your cadence and if you're running on, like on all cylinders and you're feeling like everything is in balance, that's because you're running within the right cadence. So when it comes to our life of hope, when it comes to the life of faith and our relationship to God, what we find from the stories in Genesis to the very end is that these, are, these stories are filled with people who are learning to be in the flow and in the cadence of how the Spirit of God works. If you've ever felt like you were a stranger in your own life, this series is for you because what we want to explore and what we want to answer is how do we learn to have hope when we feel like there is no hope? How do we learn to have hope when the whole world is destabilized? And so I just want to leave you with a couple of thoughts on the first practice and this first cadence of hope in your life, if you can relate to Moses and Adam and Eve and Cain and everyone else that comes after them that feels disoriented. And so the very first thing, which is hard for us, it's found in Psalm 46, verse 10, where the psalmist writes, be still and know that I am God. That's God speaking to us. So many times in our lives, we, we like to be in control of everything. We like to have the final say in everything. We want our opinion to be the one that matters the most. And so we try to take control of life. And what ends up happening is that we hold on so tight instead of getting more control in our lives we begin to realize that there's very little that we have control over and then we get this destabilization and disequilibrium in our lives but god says be still and know not just intellectually know but in the deep recesses of your soul be still and know that i am god and what god is teaching us through that is that sometimes the best thing that we can do in our lives is not try to be hyperactive and try to fix everything, but sometimes we need to just step back. Because when we allow God to be God in our lives, what we begin to realize is that sometimes like we were out of sync with what God wanted in our lives. Sometimes we realize that we were out of sync with what God desires in our life because sometimes of the decisions that we've made that have led us, like Adam and Eve, east of Eden to be strangers in our very own life. And so God says, just just pause for a moment. Gather yourself. Let me be God. Let me lead you. Let me guide you. Because I promise you that I have a better vantage point than you do. And just as the very same Spirit of God that speaks order over the tohu vavohu, the the darkness and the void at the beginning of time. The very Spirit of God that does that is available to you today as it helps to reorder the craziness, the worry, the anxiety, and the instability in the life that is all around you. You see, these stories in the Scriptures aren't just great stories for us to know. They're actually stories that speak life into us because the very same power of God that was available for them is available for us today. Sometimes we just have to sit back and be still. And and I want to just leave you with one more thing. As I mentioned earlier, God wanted to bless the Israelites, but so oftentimes they made decisions that brought a curse upon them. And that curse always led them into exile, strangers in a strange land, strangers in their own lives. Things didn't look like the way they thought they were going to. And so one of these theologians of today, he says, the only thing that you can do when you find yourself in exile is to embrace the curse. Think about that for a second. He says, when you find yourself in a strange place, embrace the curse. Embrace that reality. Because oftentimes it's in those moments of pain and suffering in your life where God actually does the greatest work in our lives. And it may not mean that God did this to you. It may not mean that it was God's decision to make you feel this pain or this suffering or this intense moment of instability. But God will use those moments in your lives to continue to reshape and transform and continue the work of recreation in your life. So if you're experiencing chaos in your life, if you're experiencing instability, if you're experiencing the tohu vavohu of the world all around you, remember that when there is chaos, the Ruach, the Spirit of God, is at work breathing order into the chaos all around us. And when God does that, we have to be able to step back, be still, and know that He is God. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much that just these stories in Scripture have so much to teach us not only about how to navigate our lives in this strange time, but that you are the one who is guiding us and leading us, walking alongside us and protecting us. And so, Father, we ask that you would continue to give us your insight and your wisdom and your eyes that we might be able to see clearly. In the name of Jesus, we pray.